If somebody is struggling with really complicated social issues, mental health issues, family relationship issues, they're really unstable. They've got a lot going on in their lives and they are being given quick and easy access to like life-altering, body-altering interventions. What are the ramifications of that? Who's to blame? Who's at fault if things go wrong? Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Dom. This episode has a lot of significance to me. My guest is Sasha Ayad. Sasha is a licensed professional counselor who focuses on young people and families coping with gender issues. And she was, I think, the fifth guest ever on this podcast. When I started The Unspeakable back in the summer of 2020, the subject of gender transition and the enormous increase in people, especially young people, announcing trans identities was at the top of my list of things to cover. And I thought really hard about who to bring on to talk about it. And eventually I reached out to Sasha. It was an amazing conversation. And since then, Sasha has grown her practice and started her own podcast, Gender A Wider Lens, which she co-hosts with psychotherapist Stella O'Malley. She had recently co-authored a book called When Kids Say They're Trans, A Guide for Thoughtful Parents. She co-authored that with Stella O'Malley and Lisa Marciano. And she is uh, a leading figure now in the world of therapists and researchers who are taking an honest, non-ideological approach to this very fraught issue. If you are listening to the sound of my voice right now, that means you are not yet a paying subscriber. This interview is about an hour and a half long, and this version, the free version, will give you about the first hour. If you want to hear the entire conversation, you can become a paying subscriber at megandom.substack.com. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-D-A-U-M. That is pretty much how it's going to be from now on. I'm going to give you a healthy amount of the conversation in the free version, but to hear the whole thing, you need to join. That's the only way I'm going to be able to keep doing this podcast. In this case, it is extremely worth it. This conversation covers so much about what's happened in the new gender movement over the last three years, what we know about the data. For instance, what we know about just how many kids are getting things like cross-sex hormones and surgeries, it's more than you've probably been led to believe, and it's just an outstanding conversation. I can tell you that we spent the first two or three minutes revisiting our conversation from three years ago. I was a brand new podcaster, and Sasha was still getting used to being interviewed. So if you can't wait to get to the meat of the matter, you might want to skip ahead just a few minutes but I think you really don't want to miss anything. So here I am with Sasha Ayad. Sasha Ayad, welcome back to The Unspeakable. Thank you. It's really good to be here. It's been a while since we last talked. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm having, I'm feeling like very moved by your presence here because you were, I believe, the fifth guest on the Unspeakable podcast. So it was during the pandemic summer yeah. when everybody started their podcast. Yeah. And I knew that I wanted to cover this topic and I was trying to find like the best person. And 
somehow I had seen and like I had heard you on a podcast or seen you do something and I just thought, oh, she's really insightful. And we ended up having an amazing conversation. And I was like, this is why I decided to do this podcast, like exactly oh. this kind of conversation. So yeah, it was it was really amazing to be on. I remember that it was like one of I was one of your first guests and I was incredibly nervous. And I don't know <laughs> if I told you this or not, but I'll I'll tell you now. When we recorded that podcast, I wanted to find first of all, I had not started my own podcast yet. So like we didn't have a podcast. So I wanted to find the quietest place that would be good for like soundproofing. So I was sitting inside of my closet, oh. <laughs> surrounded by furiously scribbled notes of like a crazy person. And I was, I had prepared like so intensely to be on your show that I think I over-prepared and terrified myself. And so I remember <laughs> after the recording was done, I was like depressed for two days because I thought it was awful. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then it came out and it turned out fine, but there was still a lot of things I would have said differently. But I was really frantic and nervous. And you may not know that, but I'm sharing that with you now as an admission. <laughs> well, th those were those were the early days. I was always terrified of some technical thing. And I had a I had a puppy. I mean, I was out in the middle of nowhere in I don't know. I, I was out in the country for several months during the pandemic. I probably shouldn't talk about this out loud. Just still loaded topic. But um, yeah. anyway, I had Hugo was a little puppy. And then uh, at one point I was recording somebody and he chewed the ethernet cable uh, oh. in the middle of the interview and the thing just cut oh. off in, in the middle. And it was because he oh, had, uh, decided that the interview needed to come to an end. So yeah, no, it was like the puppy, the technology, trying to figure out how to do interviews. It was crazy. I was like living in this, on this farm all by myself. It was, it was anyway. So, but yeah, I, and I remember going back and listening to our conversation when I was editing and I just thought, oh, this is fantastic. Like, this is the conversation that I've been wanting to hear. And then so many people afterward told me, that was the best conversation I've heard on this topic ever. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. So anyway, here we are three and a half years later. So much has happened with this topic. I don't even know where to start exactly. You have a podcast that you do with Stella O'Malley. You are running events for parents. You have your own, you've, you've really are building an empire, so to speak, around this whole issue. Did you think that we would still be talking about this three and a half years later? Or did you think we would be talking about it so intensely? Yeah, that's a great question. Because I mean, my disclaimer is that I think I'm pretty bad at predicting how things are going to unfold. I, I could pretty accurately describe what I think is happening now, but I'm not always good at figuring out what's coming. Something that I used to think at the beginning, because I started working or with, you know, gender questioning adolescents in 2016. And like my initial perspective was very, very naive. I thought, you know, I think people are just misunderstanding things. I have had success helping some of my clients who were, you know, distressed about their bodies and they kind of outgrew their dysphoria. If I can just kind of describe what I think I'm seeing and 
um, help people inject a little nuance into this. You know, all of this will correct. And right. They'll people understand. Will, yeah. People will understand and kind of stop um, sterilizing children. I mean, that seems reasonable, right? <laughs> but very quickly, I realized that this is not the case at all. And there are a lot of people who are deeply, deeply invested in not only the kind of march of medical progress into new, you know, pioneering interventions, which is part of it, but also just the belief in this essential trans kid person. And I, I did not realize how dedicated people were to these these ideas and these beliefs. And then of course there's like, you know, the financial aspect and all of the legal and government stuff. There's a lot more to it. But, you know, when I started to see that it was not just a matter of kind of having a reasonable conversation and getting people to think about this a little bit deeper, I realized my powers of prediction are pretty off. I did think though, that this was going to become more front and center in terms of what people are thinking about. So as as we were touching on before we started recording, you know, in 2016, 2017, there were a small handful of concerned professionals talking about this at all. And it was incredibly isolating. And we were seen as kind of conspiracy theorists on a fringe. Mm -hmm. And now Everybody is talking about this. This has become, I think, one of the cultural issues of our time. Yeah. So in that way, things have really, really changed. And I think what's happening in Europe is really interesting to watch because all of the countries that have done systematic reviews of the evidence have found that the risks are too high or unknown and the benefits are paltry, if any. And so they're all slowing down with the pediatric gender stuff. They're all kind of restricting the use of these interventions. Meanwhile, here in the US, there's a real culture war raging. And we have a very stubborn refusal on the side of kind of advocates of this quote unquote care. It's not really care. Gender affirming care is not care. It is medical intervention that can alter someone's sex traits, but nothing more than that. I mean, I just want to say that. There's a refusal to kind of acknowledge that we might be doing something risky. Meanwhile, of course, with, with the political nature of how things are shaking out, we have, you know, states, you know, banning this care and calling parents child abusers if they you know, agree to these interventions. And so it's just taken such a, as things do here in the US, like such a political turn. Whereas, you know, I look at Europe and I think, God, they just seem so much more reasonable. Like they're just like, let's look at the science and let's do what's best for kids. And they are progressive countries. These are not like religious fundamentalists who are trying to protect like God's perfect creation. Like these are progressive countries that pioneered a lot of these interventions. So I kind of took a, a tangent there, but I, I guess it's it's just so sad to see how impossible it is for our country to just be objective and rational about this. Often when we talk about, you know, just like why in the UK, for instance, 
I'm not, I, I think that they do have a, a more of a culture war aspect than Europe, than like the, the Netherlands. Yeah. And I want to talk about the Dutch protocol and what that means and everything. But, you know, one of the things that comes up with, with the UK is they say, well, you know, y- you guys have this kind of Christian right influence. You have the specter of gay conversion and like, you know, just decades and decades of homophobia. Not that that doesn't or didn't exist in the UK, but we mm-hmm. just have this kind mm-hmm. of fundamentalist right wing contingent in this country that doesn't exist in the UK, for instance. And that's why they can at least talk about it. Yeah. And we can't even get that far. But in terms of like what's happening in Europe, so the Dutch protocol was the kind of standard for how to address extreme gender dysphoria in young people. And I mean, as recently as I guess like 2018, you know, Jesse Singles piece in the Atlantic. He was one of the first people to write about this here. I think that we were kind of had decided that the Dutch protocol made sense and people have now revised that. I know, I know that you have. So can you just sort of explain what the Dutch protocol is and what has changed? Yeah, sure. So in the early 2000s, there was a small study that was done in the Netherlands. This was the first time that they used puberty-blocking drugs to suppress kids' puberties. And um, it was 70 kids, and it eventually was just a study of 55 kids, 15 either dropped out or kind of were disqualified for health issues or mental health issues. So 55 kids who were given puberty blockers and then later cross-sex hormones and surgery. So for the girls, it was top surgery, and for the boys, it was phalloplasty. And those young people were selected because they had childhood onset gender dysphoria, meaning before puberty, they started struggling with their sex, and they were mentally stable before beginning any of the interventions. And the way the Dutch kind of studied their gender dysphoria is using this particular scale, which we can get into after, and measuring their self-reported gender dysphoria before the interventions, and then measuring it again after. And they found no major changes in overall improvement or functioning, but they were stable from before, right? But they did find a reduction in gender dysphoria. And they haven't really followed up with them much past that. And the UK tried to replicate this study, and they were unable to do so. They were unable to find that the gender dysphoria was really relieved. So All of the kind of gender clinics, there's now, you know, so many gender clinics in the U.S. There started out as one and now there's more than like 70 or 80, I think. Um, All of these clinics are operating as though this puberty blocking treatment followed by cross-sex hormones is a very well-studied, established way of intervening with young people who have gender dysphoria. But in fact, you know, it's not the case. This was a very small cohort. And part of the reason that I have, first of all, I mean, I never thought the Dutch protocol was this gold standard of treatment that we should be using for gender dysphoria for for a couple of reasons. But one big reason is that when you look at the the way they measured the reduction in dysphoria, they used a sex-based scale. So for example, if there was a a little boy who had gender dysphoria, they'd ask him, do you like standing to pee? Do you like being seen as a boy in public? Do you like having erections? 
Of course, he's dysphoric. He's going to say, no, I don't like any of those things. And then after they gave him puberty blockers and estrogen and a vaginoplasty, the questions were switched to the female sex scale. So he was then asked, do you like having breasts? Do you like sitting to pee? And do you enjoy being perceived as a girl? And of course, the answers would be yes. So it looks like gender dysphoria is gone. And of course, it kind of makes sense given the the theory that we've now turned this boy into a girl. So he's going to answer the girl scale. But as a thought experiment, let's say we had given that little boy the girl scale prior to any medical interventions. So you have a dysphoric boy who's maybe socially transitioned. So he's wearing dresses and has long hair. And you ask him, do you like being perceived as a girl? Yes. Do you like sitting down to pee? Yes. And it could appear as though he has zero gender dysphoria because of the nature of the questions in the scale. So, I mean, I think in order for us to determine whether or not the Dutch protocol really alleviates gender dysphoria, we would have to ask questions that are kind of comparable before and after. And I I think you could have gotten that positive result about alleviating gender dysphoria, even with zero interventions at all. So I just don't, I don't think that that is a, an accurate prediction of gender dysphoria change. And I also, I mean, from, from a bigger picture perspective, I have a big issue with the idea that human beings, children, their lives are so precarious and at the whim of how adults help them understand what they're going through. And to create a a cohort of kids that is completely sterile, that is guaranteed to have sexual dysfunction and a lot of health complications, including bone density issues. There's even some indication that there could be cognitive problems. We don't know much about these interventions. And they're pretty Frankensteinian, like the way they do these vaginoplasty surgeries and some of the complications that arise when you give a kid puberty blockers, which makes surgery even more complex. To to kind of play with their lives and their bodies that way without knowing what would have happened had we just let them grow up. These kids were young, you know, they were in their teenage years, their early teen years. So In addition to the actual research not being nearly as solid as some people believe it is, we're also kind of gambling with the lives and bodies of kids who otherwise might have grown up to accept who they were and accept their bodies without any requirement of medical intervention. Right. So another place where people get confused is thinking about these different cohorts. So, you know, there have always been quote-unquote transsexuals, right? Whatever you want to call it. You know, men who are cross-dressing, who were living as the opposite sex, sometimes passing extremely well. So there's always been that contingent. And so the logic then is, well, trans people exist. There are trans adults. They must have been trans kids at one point. I think what people don't understand is that what we're seeing now, this massive increase in children and teenagers, that is a different cohort with different characteristics and comorbidities. So can you explain the difference between these two cohorts? Sure. So it's really tricky. I mean, there's so many pieces of this. I'd I'd love to start with what you lifted up here, Megan, which is that 
There are adults who choose to medically transition and may leave, may live seamlessly in their kind of chosen gender. And historically we called those people, they've called themselves transsexuals. So one aspect of this is that trans kids is a kind of retroactive predictive label that we make in hindsight about which kids will grow up to be those transsexuals. Okay. So I just want to start there because nobody has a crystal ball to know who those people will become until they've become those people. Okay. But they will say, sorry to interrupt, but you know what they will say, kids know who they are. Yeah. And that is an interesting belief that kids always know who they are and who they will be forever. I'm sure some of the time that's true. I'm sure that there are some people who at six or seven or 10 or 12 know exactly who they are in some domain of life. And that will be true forever. And the vast majority of kids do not know exactly who they'll be as an adult. So it's a real gamble to be kind of taking their word at face value. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you, you raised is that the cohort of childhood onset gender dysphoria is very different than the cohort of, you know, the kind of adolescent onset gender dysphoria that we see now. So for example, in the Dutch protocol, the children that were selected for that study developed gender dysphoria as children. So I'm going to sidestep the, the concept of the trans kid. What I'm going to say is these are children who are struggling with their biological sex or who wanted to be the other sex. From a very young age, they might have also been very gender nonconforming as kids. And it, it's really worth saying at this stage in the conversation that the 12 or 13 studies we have about childhood onset gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder or sex dysphoria, or many of the different iterations that it's been called over the years, show that 60 to 90% of kids who have that experience outgrow it once they go through puberty. Okay, so the kids who are struggling with gender dysphoria in today's cohort, the vast majority of kids showing up at gender clinics, and the numbers have absolutely skyrocketed in the last 10, 15 years, are kids who don't present with a history of childhood onset gender dysphoria. These are kids who developed gender-related issues sometime during their adolescence for the first time. So they are kids who kind of come out as trans, oftentimes in the context of a peer group that is also, you know, claiming a trans identity or after spending a long amount of time online kind of researching gender identity stuff and trans stuff. And so their coming out seems kind of out of the blue. And that's a very different population. I, I always try to keep in mind, well, what are, what are different ways to look at that? Some people say, well, you know, when I, some people will say, for example, like, you know, I'm gay. And when I came out to my parents, it was a big shock to them. You know, I, I didn't display myself as a, you know, gay six-year-old. I, you know, as I came to terms with my orientation and who I'm attracted to and who I like and who I am, I recognized and came out as gay. And that felt sudden onset to mom, <laughs> but it wasn't sudden onset. It was a legitimate thing. And I think that's a, it's a valid comparison if you think these two things are the same, but it's different insofar as, first of all, 
it's impossible to know your sexual orientation before you hit sexual maturation anyway. Really? But wait, what about people? I just heard an interview with somebody who was talking about how he, he knew he was gay when he was five years old. Well, I mean, that that might be true for, for that individual person. But I mean, for for most people, well, this is where it gets so messy with sex and gender, right? Because you know, there can be certain behaviors and traits and tendencies that are more associated with being gay as an adult. So, you know, these gender dysphoric kids, the 60 to 90% that I mentioned who outgrow it, statistically speaking, many of them will end up being gay adults. So there are some correlations, but in terms of, you know, figuring out who you're attracted to and who you like and starting to have sexual experiences, for most people, that is something that kind of comes online as they hit adolescence. I mean, most children are not having sexual experiences with one another. I mean, there's kind of curious play that they sometimes do, but that is that's not the way sexual development works for most people the majority of the time. Right. So when somebody says, I knew there was something different about me, yeah, that it's because certain traits are, are correlating. It's not they knew there was something different about their sexual attraction necessarily. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it might be like, you know, there can be kind of like innocent crushes that kids have on like, you know, a teacher or like somebody they're a little infatuated with or this girl from my class. So I'm not saying that there's zero way to tell what your attractions are, or what's coming, but it's something that gets solidified as we sexually develop. Right, right. And the other thing about this whole sudden onset versus like, you know, rapid onset is that if a young person is, let's say, discovering or solidifying their sexual identity, their romantic attractions and so on and so forth, they can do so in a way that's exploratory and helps them to kind of clarify where they're at without necessarily kind of rubber stamping their identity in ways that has permanent consequences. Whereas, you know, when a kid comes out with a new gender identity, there's often a big push to rubber stamp it in a very public and visible way that creates a sort of pathway and a sort of pressure to save face that is really hard to navigate through if that isn't really the, the ultimate landing place for that child. Something that I think we hear a lot, and probably I would have said a lot of the same stuff myself three and a half years ago, go something like this. This isn't really happening that often. When it does happen, most of these kids are just socially transitioning. They're just experimenting. They're not being medicalized. If they are being medicalized, it's really puberty blockers. And from what we know, those are reversible. And so all of you people who are being hysterical about this, saying that kids are getting cross-sex hormones when they're under 18 and even surgeries, that's not really happening. So you guys should just cool your jets. What do we know about how often this is happening? Yeah, this is this is actually a huge deal. And so recently, an organization that um, my co-host Stella O'Malley on the podcast that she runs, GenSpect, 
had a conference and somebody presented exactly on this question about like, well, what are the numbers that we have access to? So Wilfred Riley is an associate professor of political sciences at Kentucky State University. And he kind of looked at numbers coming out of insurance claims. Um, specifically, there's a Komodo analysis of insurance that was covered by Reuters. They did like a, a piece about this. So he ran the numbers looking at information on pediatric um, interventions. And what he found is that between 2017 and 2021, 122,000 kids got a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And just as one example, top surgeries, which, you know, many affirming doctors say, oh, that like rarely happens. We don't do surgery on minors. Well, according to this piece, 776 girls had top surgery in three years. And those are only the top surgeries or mastectomies that were covered by insurance. Mm -hmm. And we know that a lot of people are actually paying out of pocket for these procedures. I would think more. I mean, it's hard to get insurance to cover anything. So it's kind of remarkable that they would cover it as often as that. Okay. So 776 girls, meaning under age 18, Correct. had gotten top surgery, which means double mastectomy, by the way. We have these euphemisms, top surgery, bottom surgery. Yeah. A double mastectomy. In, right. That's okay. just in a three-year span of time. And I mean, just as an example, this isn't hard data, of course, but right now, if you go to GoFundMe, which is a website that individuals can kind of like make little fundraisers for themselves, there's more than 500 results for females asking for money to get a top surgery or get their mastectomy. So this is a very kind of in-demand procedure. And we know that most insurance companies are not covering this. So if 776 girls got this covered by insurance, we can only imagine that the numbers, uh, the kind of ultimate numbers are far, far, far higher. So this is not a rare thing that never happens. Okay. But people are going to say, well, that's not that much. I mean, this is a country of 300 million people or whatever it is. 776 girls is not, is not a huge number. Well, compared to what? I mean, just a, you know, a couple decades ago, it was zero. The number was zero. No girls were getting mastectomies based on the claim of being boys. Obviously, bottom surgery would be less common. And to be clear, what do we mean when we say bottom surgery? What are we actually talking about? Bottom surgery can either mean a phalloplasty, which is a procedure done on females where they take tissue from another part of the body, usually the arm or the leg, and construct what's called a neophallus, which is basically a tube of skin that is meant to appear like a penis. It is not functional like a penis, and there are really, really high complication rates with that surgery. And bottom surgery can also mean a vaginoplasty, which is when a male patient has a hole carved into the the space, you know, in their genital region and is castrated and has his penis kind of inverted to simulate a canal. Um, And those are also complicated surgeries. The complication rates are less terrible than the phalloplasties. But these are really difficult surgeries that can have a very negative impact on somebody's sexual functioning. 
Yeah. So when we look at the genital surgeries for minors, you know, between 13 and 17 years old and between 2019 and 2021, the insurance claims found 56 surgeries. Right. 56 genital surgeries among patients ages 13 to 17. And that was between 2019 and 2021. So again, 56, not a huge number on its face, but when you when you factor in that the majority of these surgeries are not going to be covered by insurance, it's probably considerably more than that. And in any case, what you just described is almost, it, it defies imagination almost. So the idea that 56 kids would have had this done by licensed physicians and surgeons, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. So you've been talking about this for the last several years. You've been talking about this for a long time, but you've been talking about these you know, particular issues in this particular way for the last couple of years. How often do you encounter people who just, who say this can't possibly be true? And how do you talk to them about it without sounding like a conspiracy theorist or something? I mean, this is a problem I run into all the time. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you asked that because we're doing a series about this. It's kind of got a lighthearted name, but it's not a lighthearted topic. It's called Dinner Party Conversations. And oh, it's good. basically like, how do we talk about gender with you know normal people in the real world? Aside from things like, you know, writing an op-ed piece or being on a podcast, you know, where we're explicitly like dedicating the time for this. You know, how does this come up in real life? And it's really, really difficult to be honest. You know, I have kind of a a vague way that I talk about what I do when I meet new people. I say, oh, I'm a therapist and I work with adolescents and I try to be really vague about it, but sometimes people ask more. And to be honest, I'm not someone who's out there trying to talk about gender all the time or explain this to people, though I have noticed in the last few years, it does kind of come up on its own. And I I think um, one of the things that I talk about that I think has a big impact on people is some of the misunderstandings about these interventions and what they can and can't do. So, you know, if you are like a normie lay person and you only know about this based on, you know, snippets you've heard here or there on the news, particularly if you're a liberal person who listens to more kind of left-leaning news sources, you would think that this intervention, this medical care is uncontroversial, that it is very, very low side effects, if any, that it is always helpful and beneficial and that nobody ever regrets it. What people don't know is that if you put a kid on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, you sterilize them for life. And that's not reversible. Okay. But wait a second. Puberty blockers, what about puberty blockers on their own? Well, puberty blockers are not something that a kid can stay on indefinitely. So like, uh, theoretically, I don't know what would happen puberty blockers forever. My understanding is that theoretically, if you just like with the way precocious puberty works, I, I think if kids are taken off of puberty blockers, when their normal puberty is supposed to have begun, then they develop and proceed normally. That's my understanding. Okay. And we should, yeah. And we should say also, I mean, these, these blockers have been used for the diagnosis of precocious puberty for a long time, meaning kids who were like, you know, 
hitting puberty when they were six or seven or that that kind of thing. So these drugs have been tested. But my understanding is that most kids who go on puberty blockers then do move on to cross-sex hormones, like almost all of the time. Yeah, like 98% or more. It's, it's around 98%. Wow. So it, that's the thing. I mean, when people say that they're completely reversible, theoretically they are. But in practice, that's not what happens. And that's kind of why I've come to believe that, you know, with young children, if they are socially transitioned and affirmed, it almost makes the medical steps an inevitability. Like, well, what's next then for me? You know, if I've been told that I'm literally a boy since I was five or six, then me having a period is going to be a real crisis. So let's get on the puberty blockers. It's a pause button. Okay, but then what? You know, I've paused. What am I going to do? Stay in limbo forever? Well, that's that's not feasible. So the next step is, well, let me let me go forward in my journey as a boy, right? So I think in theory, these things being uh, temporary or reversible is inaccurate in that that's not what happens in practice. So getting back to the dinner party, I've said many times that I have yeah. ruined several dinner parties uh, when this topic has come up. So what I hear a lot is um, somebody will say, well, you know, from what I know about this subject, I listen to the kids. You know, my friend has a non-binary child and they have never been happier. Or, you know, my neighbor down the street has a transgender child and everything is working out great. And, you know, I, I listen to them. I mm -hmm. follow their lead. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, I guess if if somebody was calling me for a consultation, that'd be one thing. Over dinner, I probably would respond differently. But, you know, it, you know, as a therapist, as a clinician, what I would say is, okay, well, first of all, what do you think it means to be non-binary? And I would probably start by asking some questions around that. And then I would kind of talk about the pathway that the child might be on. You know, if we affirm this gender for this child, what does that mean for the child? Okay. And, and even the word affirming can look different for different scenarios. If affirming means, okay, honey, you're non-binary, what else is going on in your life, right? And you broaden their world and you don't make too huge a deal of it. That's one thing. If you affirm them and say, oh, you're non-binary, that's amazing. You're so brave. Let's like start a campaign at your school about non-binary awareness and let's get you pronoun pins and let's make every aspect of your life about your non-binary identity. That is a huge burden being placed on the child, right? So there's so many iterations of what these words could mean and how a family can respond to the young person's identity. But, you know, if they are happier than ever and they are kind of marching headfirst into a medical process, it's up to the adults to think about what the long-term ramifications are. It doesn't really matter if the child is really happy right now because medical interventions foreclose possibilities for that child's life in the future. And it's the adult's job, and it's always been the adult's job, to have the foresight to think about those things. And adults are tasked with doing their best 
to make sure that their children have, you know, multiple important like opportunities and also basic human rights available to them as they get older, like the right to not have your future fertility impeded because of a childhood belief. I mean, that just feels so detrimental. Okay, we can call it a childhood belief, but it is also a belief of the medical establishment. Yeah. So you can say all of this, but the average parent who has a child who is announcing this kind of identity is going to go to a gender clinic and be told something entirely different. So can you walk us through what would happen at one of these typical clinics? Sure. And, you know, I, I, I just actually made a video about this for um, parents of prepubertal kids. And I, I want to say, like, what I'm about to share about gender clinics is not something I would have even ever believed had I not heard so, 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 so many shockingly almost identical stories from parents who leave these clinics absolutely upside down with their heads spinning, like being really confused about what they've just encountered. And, you know, I hate the hedging, but there are some clinicians who call themselves affirming clinicians who do not probably practice this way. But the vast majority of parents I've ever talked to who had been to a gender clinic had a similar experience to the following. Okay. And just to be clear, when we say gender clinic, we're talking about usually a clinic affiliated with a major hospital. We're not talking about like some random clinic, like storefront cannabis clinic. Okay. We're not talking about like the med spa. We're talking about the a, a gender clinic that is affiliated with a major medical institution that you trust, that is in your community or your city that you would trust just without even thinking twice. Yeah, these are major metropolitan cities, hugely funded, associated with like the best universities in the country. And these are very, you know, reputable experts in the field. And they operate on a belief about gender identity. And the belief is something that kind of we've been alluding to during this whole conversation, which is that when a young person claims a a specific identity, that they know who they are and that they are the best person to kind of direct their own care, the child is. So, you know, under the gender affirming model of care, which is this kind of informal description of how most of these gender clinics operate, it is a child-led process. So for example, if you have I'll just kind of pick a very typical story that I've heard just hundreds and hundreds of times. If you have a 14-year-old daughter who was completely gender typical in her childhood, you know, refused to take off her princess costume for six months after Halloween and, you know, hated playing with her brother and his friends and was just like a very typical girly girl in the stereotypical way, okay? And, you know, at 13 or 14, she kind of started struggling socially. She was a little quirkier and more creative and artistic than than the other girls. And she didn't really know how to do the kind of girl socialization that often happens at that age. And she's a little bit isolated. And then COVID happens and school goes online and she's spending, you know, six hours a day in front of her screen. And puberty is happening and she's really uncomfortable. So she Googles, why do I hate my breasts? And then finds herself in like a, you know, FTM 
Reddit forum and all these FTMs are talking about how they need top surgery. And FTM how is female. Female to male. Yeah. So let's say this is happening, right? And you're, this child starts to become very depressed and then writes some sort of coming out letter to her mom. I'm really a boy. Um, I've always been a boy. I have hated being a little girl and I need to have um, a binder and I need to socially transition. And parents like, wow, this came out of the blue. I knew my kid was kind of struggling. We've all been noticing her mood has changed, but this is really left field. I have no idea what she's talking about. And let's take her to someone who specializes in gender because she's having complaints about her gender. And if you show up at this gender clinic, what is likely to happen is that the professional will have a meeting with the kid and the family. Sometimes they split the kid up from the family and they speak to them by themselves. But the, the clinician will ask the child, what, what do you want to be called? What pronouns can I use for you? And that is the first question, regardless of how long the young person has been questioning their gender, even if they started questioning their gender literally five minutes before, it's going to be up to the child on how they are referred to and what pronouns they use. And then, you know, the, the family is often told that, you know, if a young person is struggling with their gender, they are at a high rate of you know, all kinds of mental health problems, and potentially they will be told something about suicide and pushed to really make drastic changes in terms of how they view their child, how to be, quote, supportive, which means agreeing with the trans identification. And, you know, if the child is really distressed, they will often recommend puberty blockers as a pause button. That, that is a term I've heard just hundreds of times. It's just a pause button. Now, most of the families who contact me feel that that first encounter with the clinic was so inappropriate and lacked any concern about the underlying issues. Like a lot of times parents will try to raise, well, you know, she was struggling with an eating disorder, you know, like she's been, you know, bulimic or anorexic for a few years. And so we're very concerned that you know, the gender thing should really take a backseat to these other issues. And oftentimes they're dismissed or whatever. And so they feel like something is not right about this type of care or this type of treatment. And so they end up, you know, trying to shift away from the clinic, seeing how quickly they jump to medical interventions there and they contact someone like me. But, you know, I am contacted by many, many parents who have gone down that affirming road, sometimes for a few years. And have come to believe that it is not helping their child or that their child is getting worse. So I'm trying to remember how exactly we got here, but the, the experience of gender clinics from, from the you know parents that I've talked to is often one where they feel really pressured into moving forward with gender. Like there's not a lot of time to pause and assess and see if there are other issues going on. It's really focused on moving forward with gender. And where did these clinicians emerge from? Because I just think it's so hard for people to get their minds around the idea that you would have people that went to medical school. I mean, we should say these are not just therapists. These are actual physicians and surgeons. So people who are highly, highly trained, ostensibly intelligent, totally buying into this pretty new and definitely out there framework of thought like, did they just sort of like, did they start teaching differently 
in like social work, clinical social work school or in medical schools? Like, where is this coming from? Yeah. I mean, I would have to kind of defer to some other people in the medical field to talk about what's happening in medical schools. But I do know from a lot of the clinicians that I'm in contact with who are just coming out of graduate school now, I would say for at least the last maybe 10 years, the curricula in these programs, whether it's training for therapists or counselors or school counselors or social workers, is very much superficial, like gin- gingerbread person kind of level stuff. Oh, the you know, gender, where, the gender oh, bread gender person. Bread. Can you explain yeah, what that gingerbread. is? Gingerbread. Everyone's like, I love gingerbread. What's she talking about? <laughs> the gingerbread person is a very juvenile diagram of a, a what looks like a gingerbread person. It's a cartoon that shows people that it's like hard to describe because it's so asinine, Megan, but shows that <laughs> gender is what's between your head, like what's between your ears. Sex is what's between your legs. And sexual orientation is the gender of person you're attracted to. And it's uh, used in a lot of health ed curriculums and like kind of um, curricula to teach children about gender identity, which I mean, it's completely fantasy. They're it teaching not- this to adults in gr- like graduate programs. Yeah. I mean, I say that as a kind of being facetious. That is a diagram often used to teach kids. But yeah. what I'm learning about the graduate programs for therapists and clinicians is that they're teaching basically that type of information with slightly more words and less cartoons. <laughs> you know, it's not very nuanced. It doesn't really talk about gender identity development in a way that is psychological. It does not address anything about other mental health comorbidities that could create gender dysphoria in somebody. And furthermore, I think what's most disturbing from, you know, uh, students who I have been contacted by, there is no room for discussion. I have met a lot of therapists in training who were really ostracized by their peers and sometimes kind of like informally reprimanded by their administrations just by raising concerns and questions about this. Yeah, yeah. To kind of understand how how is this happening, you have to remember that this is being taught with a kind of gravitas and confidence that is not warranted. There's no evidence that there's such a thing as like this gender soul that we all have. And I can certainly be sympathetic to the idea that a person with gender dysphoria feels as though their identity doesn't match their body. And we can talk about that in a nuanced way. But to act as though somebody's currently declared identity is this fixed, stable thing that needs to be accommodated by changing their body, no matter how young they are, no matter how distressed they are, no matter how many other complications they have. I mean, it is so anti-psychological and non-helpful. I mean, it's not even non-helpful. It's just so destructive to teach it. It definitely harkens back to like the recovered memory syndrome days. You know, I don't want to go too far down this path because this is like an entirely separate conversation, but like, you know, the satanic panic, that, that was the result of clinicians, therapists who really, really believed 
that there was such a thing as recovered memory, that yeah. really believed that three-year-olds, if they told you that elephants were flying across the room and they were being molested by objects in their preschool, that therefore must be true. This has a very similar flavor. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you look at, because I, I did study the repressed memory epidemic and satanic panic and all of that. And when you study the way that unfolded, you see a lot of parallels with what is happening now with gender. You know, I think the power of suggestibility, you know, when you take a young person and you offer this explanation for why do you hate your boobs, you know, like there's always a grain of truth. Yeah, something about being a girl doesn't feel right. Okay, well, that might be true, but when we take that to the farthest conclusion, what does it mean? That you're literally not a girl? Okay, well, you know, yeah, there are some memories from my childhood that are a little bit fuzzy. And sometimes I'm, you know, sometimes I'm afraid of my dad. Okay, so let's kind of piece together threads far away from one another and just like invent a story about some sort of, you know, abuse. Now, I think one thing that's worth noting about the parallels between like repressed memories and gender dysphoria is that my understanding of repressed memories is that this entire movement of believe the children and extracting these repressed memories came on the heels of society starting to grapple with the fact that sexual abuse was actually happening to children. Yes. And it was something not talked about, something that kids were expected to shut up about. And perpetrators of this abuse, often family members, were getting off scot-free. And this has unfortunately been a very tragic reality for thousands of young people who were not heard and not believed and not allowed to talk about their experience. So on the heels of that, you know, you have this kind of compensatory movement to try and give kids a voice and believe what could be going wrong. And don't put it past that nice guy from down the street that he would never hurt his children, right? So you, you can understand where this desire to trust and believe children came from. And then you also use the power of suggestion to kind of offer up, you know, ways that you had been abused. And just like for context, if anyone does not know, the kinds of methods therapists were being trained to use to help a child, quote, uncover their memories were things like using hypnosis, using sedative medications, and helping to construct memories. And something we know about, you know, eyewitness testimony is that memory is very, very subjective. Yeah. So therapists were kind of encouraging kids to like get real drowsy and just start talking and thinking. And they would then suggest like, do you remember seeing this? Do you remember seeing that? And then some of the supposed reports were so absolutely insane that like, you know, yeah, my dad took a baby that my mom had and cut him up in a million pieces and made us eat him. And then we all danced around the fire for 20 hours straight, like stuff that was so insane and astronomically not true. And people were convicted based on these children's reports that were being conjured up with the help of therapists. So the role of professionals here is so crucial. 
And this kind of makes me think about another aspect that we could talk about, which is, you know, when young people who have gone through these gender-related interventions as teenagers and young adults hit 25, 26, sometimes they have kind of a wake-up moment about their pathway being wrong for them, being harmful to them, the detransitioners. So these are people who went down some sort of a medical pathway and changed their minds and are now trying to come back to identifying with their birth sex after many physical changes make it very, very hard in their bodies because they now look like the sex they identified with for right. a handful well, of they years. Sort right? of, they sort of look like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when we think about detransitioners and their experiences, so many of them are kind of told, it was your responsibility. You know, it's your fault that this happened to you. You willingly took the hormones. You willingly had the surgery. And, you know, when we look at things like satanic panic and lobotomies and like all of these different kind of medical and psychiatric scandals, these things would not have happened without professionals who, again, were true believers in a thing, or maybe they were kind of careless and flippant. Maybe they were in it for the money. You know, I can't presume to know people's intentions, but these things would not have happened had there not been both patients and professionals completely wrapped up in this kind of trendy and really potent kind of cultural belief. And if I'm not mistaken, some of these clinicians in the gender world now are sort of left over from that time period. Yeah. At least there's one in particular I, I can think of. I know for sure. Yeah. Had a it was had a big role um in the in the nineties in the recovered memory stuff and has now moved on to this. I mean, and it's also worth pointing out that a lot of the that recovered memory stuff, it was being done on adults. I mean, people went yeah. to prison because of adults, usually women, what they were made to say, um, mm -hmm. what they were made to believe about what had happened in their past. So if, if adults can be manipulated in this way, certainly children can. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a, a minute ago, you know, 25, 26 years old. Another question that comes up all the time is how long does it take for this to run its course? So if a young person announces a, a trans identity, say when they're 16, and you're just going to let it run its course because, you know, your parent is, you know, throwing their hands up in the air. And eventually the kid is going to turn 18 and there's nothing that the parents can do. What do we expect in terms of like the, the lifespan of this belief system in the average person? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think it's interesting because the term run its course implies that the cultural and social environment, the context that the young person is in is relatively neutral, right? So running its course kind of means that the kid's not being pushed in either direction and we give it time and we see what happens to that person's identity. And if there was such a thing as a kind of neutral environment, like where this could run its course, you know, it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on what the young person, how they came to feeling gender dysphoric, what they believe about their gender dysphoria, what they think transitioning will and won't do for them, and all kinds of personal factors. 
But, you know, most young people today who start questioning their gender at 16, they're not in a neutral environment. They're either in an environment where there's a kind of split lives, where they have this online world where everybody is kind of super supportive and trans. And for more information on this, I would recommend everyone to look at Eliza Mondegreen's research about these online communities. It's really interesting. She was recently on uh, my other podcast with Sarah Hader, A Special Place in Hell, talking about this. Yeah, she's fascinating on this. Yeah, she's great. So some kids live in a world where, you know, on their, in their online world, they're, you know, really being, they're cultivating this trans identity and it feels really good. And then in their real life world, maybe they are being bullied or they are kind of being made fun of, or they don't really have like a peer group where they fit in and kids are kind of mean to them. So that's not a neutral kind of place for the identity to run its course. If anything, that's going to make the power of the online world even more potent and very attractive. And I think another scenario, which I hear a lot too, especially in certain types of kind of affluent and liberal cities, the social environment in real life in 3D is very encouraging of the trans identity. So you have, you know, teachers celebrating you, your LGBT club is celebrating you, like you are like a trans superstar at your school. And that is not a neutral environment where something can run its course, right? So I, it's hard to say that. What I have found is that the way families respond can have a positive impact on how things develop. And in fact, you know, I co-wrote a book called When Kids Say They're Trans, along with Lisa Marciano and Stella O'Malley. And it's a guidebook for parents. So it's like if you have a prepubertal child or a teenager or even a young adult child, here's some of the things that you need to understand. Here's the data, the science, the research. And also here's some very practical parenting ideas to help you kind of create guardrails around safety, stay well connected to your child, improve your relationships, and, you know, be honest about what you think while being really loving and warm. And that can have a really positive impact on the child's overall functioning. And whether or not the gender necessarily shifts isn't even the the number one outcome. It's like many of the kids who do poorly and end up regretting their transition do so, A, because they were kind of sold a lie, in my opinion, and B, because they were really unwell to begin with. So many of these young people really need to be supported in all domains of life. They need to be healthy, happy, well-rounded people with good family relationships and friends and some sort of, you know, interesting work that they're doing or some kind of aspirations for their life. I mean, that seems like a very Pollyanna idealist thing, but generally if your life is completely miserable and you're hanging all of your hopes on this fantasy that once I transition, I'm going to be this like amazing, happy guy that is going to be a recipe for crash and burn. Yeah. I want to shift a little and talk about the parents that come to you and, you know, your, your work with families, because I know that you and Stella are running retreats for, for parents, among other things, you've built an incredible kind of network. But before we get to that, before I forget, like, I mean, it's, we're talking about kids under 18 because 18 is the age of consent. So like when we talk about all this stuff, it's 
the easiest way to frame it is to say, well, these kids, these are children essentially. And Mm, if they're under mm -hmm, 18, we mm -hmm. need to be really, really concerned about this. The fact is they turn 18 and then all bets are off. Right. Yeah. yeah. So like, this is, I think something that is very common and it's not really discussed because I've got, I've talked to a lot of parents who are like, okay, well now my kid's 21 and they're in college and they're going down to the the Planned Parenthood and getting cross-sex hormones, which, by the way, can you address that? True or not true? True. Planned Parenthood true. gives yeah. puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones without parental consent in some cases. Oh, you know, I, I have to say, I think this is state to state. I believe that some states, kids can waive the requirement for parental consent in the same way that they might do if they wanted to get like contraception or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, over 18s can go to any Planned Parenthood and get cross-sex hormones. Okay. So yeah, I mean, I think that's really important. And my hope is that this entire cultural moment where pediatric gender transition is kind of front and center in our debates and in our minds, and it's raising all these medical ethics questions. What I'm hoping comes out of this, A, is that we you know, protect kids from making these kinds of medical decisions, but, but B, is that we start thinking a little more critically about informed consent for these young adults. Because I've met too many detransitioners now who started after 18 and went headfirst into pretty serious procedures quickly because, you know, in some places there's this kind of like a, like I'm thinking about horse races, there's like the gate, right? And you're like 16 and 17 and you're like ready to go. And then the gate lifts and boom, you're off at 18. And that is can be so dangerous as well. So I'm not making any kind of like policy claims about what we should or should not allow people to do with their bodies, but the ethical questions remain that like, if somebody is struggling with really complicated social issues, mental health issues, family relationship issues, they're really unstable. They've got a lot going on in their lives and they are being given quick and easy access to like life-altering, body-altering interventions. What are the ramifications of that? Who's to blame? Who's at fault if things go wrong? Are these people really being given informed consent? Which means not only do you have to know the side effects of the medications, that's the most superficial version of informed consent, but what about understanding the nature of your condition? That gender dysphoria is a complicated aspect of experience that can be contributed to by a lot of different things. What about being explained to that just because you're dysphoric, it doesn't mean that you're trans and that medical interventions are necessarily going to be helpful? What about being honest with people that, you know, starting on gender transition is a kind of bridge that leads nowhere? Like you'll never actually change sex. Is, is that informed consent? Okay, but hold on, because they will say, well, it doesn't lead to changing my biological sex, but it does lead to a life that is more, in, my body is congruent with my brain. And so I have a happier life. So it does lead to a better life. I mean, there we should say there are a lot of 
transgender people, adults who are happy and who are glad that they transitioned. Yeah, and I, I think that's fine. But what even what you said is a much more realistic version of the truth. I mean, I'm talking about people who literally don't understand that you can't become a man. I mean, this is the problem with early intervention. You start telling a kid at six that she's really a boy, and you tell her that her whole life, she is not going to know any better. If you have a teenager or a young adult who says, I'm fully aware that I can never change my biological sex, and I'm aware that medicine is not magic, I can alter some of my sex traits aesthetically, cosmetically, and with every medical intervention, just like with any other medical intervention, there are serious trade-offs. And if they can articulate, I also understand that gender medicine itself has very low quality of evidence. There are a lot of unknowns and there are a lot of complications that we don't understand yet. And I am happy to risk some of those trade-offs for the chance of altering my body aesthetically in ways that will feel congruent, then that is informed consent. But that's not how most people approach this entire process. And even, you know, at the gender clinics, they are acting as though the person is the other sex already before even medically intervening. So it, there's like so much. That was the first hour or so of my conversation with Sasha Ayad. There's about another half hour to go. So to hear it, become a paying subscriber at megandom.substack.com. In the meantime, you should know that Sasha is a licensed professional counselor who works in private practice with teens, young adults, and families impacted by gender issues. She is the co-host with Stella O'Malley of the podcast Gender, A Wider Lens, and the co-author of the new book, When Kids Say They're Trans, A Guide for Thoughtful Parents. What else do you need to know? This is the Unspeakable Podcast. The Unspeakeasy is my community for heterodox women, my women's viewpoint diversity community. As you probably know, we have a very vibrant online community. We also do retreats, in-person retreats that are just spectacular. We talk about all kinds of things at these retreats. Gender does come up, however. It's not the only thing we talk about, but it definitely comes up and we have had incredibly fascinating, productive, just poignant, intelligent, insightful conversations about gender. And so if this is something that interests you, go to theunspeakeasy.com and find out more about what we're up to. I'm going to take a few weeks off for the holidays. I will be back right after the new year with many more super nuanced guests. Until then, I hope you have a safe, peaceful holiday. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.